Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund, and I am flying solo today. My partner in crime, Simone Malaz, is busy holding down our D.C. Bureau for Washington Mardi Gras. And for those of you who may not know, um, this is the 72nd Washington Mardi Gras that's put on by the Mystic Crew of Louisianians, where pageantry, politics, and power meet and mix. Um, And according to an article in the Homa Courier, Um, Jeremy Alford is quoted as saying there will be enough elected officials here to constitute a quorum for every major government body Louisiana has right now. Um, A little bit of history on Washington Mardi Gras. In 1975, President Gerald Ford and his wife Betty attended the ball at the Hilton where Washington Mardi Gras is held. And U.S. Senator Senator Russell Long of Louisiana had imposed a rule that anybody who removed his or her mask during the ball would have to pay a $50 fine. Well, um, Long wanted to dance with the then First Lady Betty Ford, um, but the Secret Service made him take off his mask. So he had to violate his own rule and pay the fine, but I believe he did get his dance with the First Lady. So I do hope Simone Malaz and the rest of our coastal crew who are representing Louisiana up in D.C. this week are having a great time. And, you know, if Simone is not going to be here, she always gives me a hard time about it, but I am going to make this show dedicated to the birds of our coast and bring back a well-regarded Delta Dispatches guest and also expert on all things birds and coastal, um, Director of Bird Conservation with Audubon, Louisiana, Eric Johnson. Welcome back to Delta Dispatches, Eric. Hey, Jacques. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Well, Ready for 2020. Exactly. Well, you know, Eric, you're always welcome on Delta Dispatches, so thank you for joining us. Um, and, you know, how has your year been so far? I mean, I feel like we've really just jumped into it. Yeah, it's hard to believe that January is almost over already. Um, but, yeah, we have a lot of exciting work coming up to do this year. Um, I guess we'll get talking about it. The BP-10, lots of restoration work going on, um, and lots of intersects with, with bird conservation. Absolutely. And I mean, you mentioned that, you know, we're approaching in April the 10th anniversary of the BP oil spill, which was obviously so devastating to, you know, wildlife people, um, you know, the environment here in Louisiana, but also across the Gulf. And folks like yourself and others at Audubon have been doing a lot of work to track progress that's been made in terms of recovery and restoration. Um, So we'll be talking about that a lot this year as we approach the anniversary and and look back at, at any progress that's been made, but also look ahead at what needs to happen. Um, I guess from from your perspective, um, let's talk about some of that progress. So there's been an announcements and work being done on an island called Queen Bess, which is really critical in terms of recovery from the oil spill and for birds. So tell us a little bit about the Queen Bess Island. Yeah, Queen Bess Island is about four miles away from Grand Isle, sort of on the southern edge of Barataria Bay, and was ground zero during the oil spill. Um, of course, oil spill happened in April and May and June, which is during the peak of the nesting season for a whole variety of species like pelicans and spoonbills and terns and skimmers and so on and so forth. And unfortunately, you know, birds on that island were, were oiled. The babies were oiled. Um, it, was a, it was a pretty devastating year for, for, for birds, um, not only on Queen Bess, but obviously around the coast. So we are super excited to see the restoration of that island moving forward. Um, it's about a 36 acre footprint uh, of rock around the island protecting the island but the island's been sinking for years and only five acres is currently available to nesting for birds 
Um, so this restoration project, using the penalty dollars from the BP oil spill, will actually restore the island and provide a lot more area for birds to fill in and nest on. Right. And we know, I mean, brown pelicans and other bird species have had a pretty tough history and, and they've rebounded. But, you know, some might say, well, you know, if that island disappears or is damaged, I mean, they can just go elsewhere, right? So kind of tell us why that may not be the case, why, you know, these islands, even though they're individual islands, may be so important to an entire species. Right. Yeah. So there's two sort of reasons for that, why queen best is so important. And, and first and foremost is that brown pelicans are very faithful to their nesting site from year to year. Um, so it's in their ecology to not want to disperse to other islands. So they absolutely depend on the islands that they've nested on in previous years. But number two is that, that Queen Bess is one of the three most important brown pelican nesting islands in Louisiana. And Louisiana has more brown pelicans than any other state. So by corollary, Queen Bess Island is one of the most important nesting islands um, for brown pelicans anywhere in the country. Yeah, I mean, that's that's incredible. And I mean, obviously, devastating. These islands were already kind of dealing with the issues of land loss and kind of disappearing from, from a number of factors. Then they were oiled, um, not only damaging the birds during nesting season, but damaging the islands themselves. And so, so what's been done to kind of bring the island back? And what does that restoration actually entail? So it, um, it's mostly being done through dredging, right? So taking sediment and material from nearby and pumping it back into the, the rock ring that's surrounding the island. Um, you know, and so, so it'll basically lift the elevation of the island, which will allow um, various kinds of woody vegetation to establish. And that will provide the nesting uh, platforms for things like pelicans and, and other wading birds. Um, but they're also going to add a shell... Um, sort of sand layer around the edge of the island, which will provide an open sort of uh, area that will be really attractive to species like skimmers and royal terns and sandwich terns. They used to nest on the on Queen Bess Island in much larger numbers than they do today. Um, in most current years, there's maybe a couple hundred pairs of each of those species. There used to be thousands. So this will be a really exciting component of the island to bring those ground nesting birds back. And then by adding that elevation, It'll protect those nests from getting flooded by, by various summer storms that we've been seeing more and more of every year. And for those who may not know, Queen Bess is kind of so, somewhat north of Grand Isle, but there's another island um, that's kind of moving forward as well in terms of restoration. So tell us about Rabbit Island and where that is and, and what its importance is. Yeah, Rabbit Island is a dredge spoil island on the western side of the state. It's in uh, Calcasieu Lake and is one of the most um, important nesting islands in that part of the uh, of Gulf Coast because there really aren't any other nesting islands for things like pelicans and, and terns um, until you get to Galveston Bay and then again like east of Vermilion Bay. So it's one of these stepping stone islands that provide, uh, provides really like important genetic connectivity between the Texas population and the Louisiana population. Um, and it's one of these islands that is 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 just you know, really important for, for birds. It's it's has more reddish egrets on it, nesting on it, than any other island in Louisiana. Um, it's a relatively large island and relatively close to the mainland, but it is predator-free, and so that gives these birds a really uh, good chance for nesting. But like, you know, most of coastal Louisiana and other nesting islands, it has been sinking, it has been eroding, and, um, you know, those, those nesting birds are experiencing flood in storm surges that, that overwash their nests. And so, again, providing this 
dredge material and building it back up and providing that ele elevation will be really, really beneficial to these birds. And that project is starting to move forward right now, correct? Yeah, there was a public comment period um, uh, that just ended a, a few weeks ago. Um, but yeah, it's moving forward. It's, it's slated for, for restoration. Um, it'll cost about $27 million, again, using um, you know, penalty dollars from the, um, from the oil spill. So really good use of, of those restoration dollars to, to, to benefit the birds that were injured from the spill. Right. Well, we want to talk a little bit more about some of the other restoration work that's happening and, and what else has been going on at Audubon, Louisiana. I know there are some opportunities for people to get involved, um, but we're, we have to head into a break. But Eric, would you mind giving folks the website where they can go to learn more about Audubon, Louisiana, um, volunteer for, I know you have a lot of volunteer events that are upcoming, as well as support the work that you and others at Audubon, Louisiana are doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's simple. You just go to LA, like Louisiana.audubon.org and click on um, sign up on the upper right. Awesome. So a great resource to just learn about the birds of Louisiana, how important our coast and our state is to those birds, and then actually get involved and help um, bird species and other wildlife, la.audubon.org. Um, we'll be right back with Eric Johnson on Delta Dispatches. National Wildlife Federation gives voices to the wildlife conservation values that are part of our country's heritage. We are charting a new course for wildlife that our children and grandchildren will thank us for. Visit our website, nwf.org Louisiana, to find out more about our work to restore and protect coastal Louisiana for generations to come. National Wildlife Federation, uniting all Americans to ensure wildlife thrive in a rapidly changing world. nwf.org slash Louisiana. Hi, I'm Don Cheadle. Listen up. I want to talk to you about something important, the Environmental Defense Fund. EDF isn't like some of the other environmental groups. EDF works together with those on both sides of the issue. Despite all the fighting in Washington, EDF has found ways for both parties to support real progress. That has made our air and water cleaner and the products in our homes safer. So not only can our planet prosper, so can our future. Go to edf.org to see how you can help. At Audubon, we believe that where birds thrive, people prosper. Nowhere is that more evident than in Louisiana. Integrating science, education, and policy, Audubon, Louisiana's mission is to conserve and restore natural ecosystems, focusing on birds, other wildlife, and their habitats for the benefit of humanity and the Earth's biological diversity. Visit la.audubon.org to learn more and support our mission. la.audubon.org. Restore Retreat is a coastal nonprofit organization working in the heart of the Barataria and Terrebonne Basins, from the Mississippi River to the Atchafalaya. We work every day to restore Louisiana's coast, community, and culture with our mission of implementing long-term and large-scale projects for our irreplaceable region. We'll hope you join us in supporting the solution. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and online at www.restoreorretreat.org. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. 
And it is time for the Coastal Stat of the Week. And given our guest, I thought this was an appropriate stat. It's from Audubon.org's Bird Guide. And Eric was mentioning the reddish egret, or Egretta refugiens. Eric, you're going to have to correct me on that. Um, their numbers were decimated by plume hunters in the late 1800s and were reportedly not seen in Florida between 1927 and 1937. But numbers have gradually increased under complete protection. Current U.S. population stands at roughly 2,000 pairs. So welcome back, Eric. Um, any thoughts on the stat of the week? And, okay, one, did I butcher the Latin name? And then two, I mean, 2,000 pairs, that doesn't seem like a lot of birds. I think you gave a, a, a better uh, pronunciation to the Latin than I possibly could have, so... Kudos on that. I would just say Egretta rufescens, which is so English. So <laughs> good job. Um, but yeah, I mean, 2,000 pairs is really, really small um, for for a bird like this. Um, many other egrets and herons and spoonbills and things like that were also decimated back in the late 1800s and early 1900s, but have bounced back much more rapidly than reddish egret. Um, reddish egret is a very specialized bird and is uh, very tropical as well. So it's it's restricted to the southern part of the United States um, and to these uh, coastal um, sort of estuaries and 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 saltwater, you know, pans and, and bays and things like that. So most of the population is actually in Texas. About 80% of the U.S. population is in Texas, mostly the Laguna Madre, and then the rest are mostly in Florida. And in Louisiana, we have probably fewer than 100 pairs. So very, very, very rare bird in Louisiana. And there's really only a couple nesting islands here where they where they exist, and Rabbit Island is one of them. Yeah, and you are mentioning how critical they are, and they're just beautiful birds. Um, well, also beyond kind of the bay islands or bird islands that you were referencing, the state has been doing a lot, and we've talked to you about this before, but on the barrier islands, right, the large kind of expanses of, of islands that are out at the edge of our coast. Um, and there is some work that is, I believe, starting or about to start on one, another barrier island. So tell us a little bit about West Grand Terre. Where is it and kind of what is it going to do? Yeah, West Grand Terre is the island just east of uh, Grand Isle. So if you're standing from the Grand Isle State Park and looking east, that is that is West Grand Terre out there. And it's really one of the last islands in the Barataria chain um, to undergo major restoration in the last um, 10 or 15 years or so. So it'll be an exciting project to sort of, um, you know, finish off that chain of barrier islands and, and have them all restored. Um, you know, it's gone through other phases of restoration years ago, but sort of small and incremental. This will be a much larger uh, restoration project and will benefit birds like least terns and Wilson's plovers, um, you know, things that nest on the beach. So uh, we're excited to see that project move forward. Absolutely. And I mean, in addition to being critical habitat for birds, um, there are, these islands also provide important protection to, to communities and, and are uh, in more kind of uh, estuary, estuary and marsh um, from storm surge and, and wave action. So, um, but in terms of restoring and or benefiting birds, uh, these islands, you know, once they're restored, you, th- that's not it, right? There has to be more done to kind of protect some of the bird populations that exist. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so some of the things that we're doing at Audubon is um, is focusing on the human, dis- human disturbance and human interactions uh, that can affect beach nesting birds. So when you have a restoration project like they did on Elmer's Island, um, you know, that is a hugely attractive project to birds like Lee's Turns. And so, you know, when people go out on the beach to enjoy the beach, it's a, you know, beautiful place to go recreate and, and, you know, collect shells and and do what people do. 
Um, but, you know, if you're close to one of those nests, the bird will flush off, and unfortunately those eggs can actually cook in the, the heat of the summer sun. So we take a section of the beach and we sort of rope it off and put up what we call symbolic fencing with some signs indicating that that's the nesting spot for birds, and then we leave the rest of the beach for the people. Um, and so we have, you know, seasonal uh, biologists that come down and help us with that. Volunteers come out and help. Um, they help us put up the fencing. They help us communicate why we do this kind of work to protect these birds um, to people that visit the beach. And it's been really successful. So we've had almost no nest loss at all um, uh, from, a, from resulting from, from this kind of work. So we're, we're really, really proud of that. That's incredible. And reminder, you can go to la.audubon.org and, and learn more about these volunteer opportunities and sign up to help. Um, so shifting from the barrier island or our islands to the swamp, um, tell us a little bit about a project that is aiming to restore and protect the Moorpaw Swamp. Yeah, so um, there is a river reintroduction project, so taking Mississippi River water and diverting it into Moorpaw Swamp um, to help revitalize uh, this relic swamp. Um, and so this is a project that's been authorized uh, going back to 2001. Um, it's taken a long time to get to this point, but there is finally uh, funding available to, to push it forward. So the design of the project is complete, and um, we're on the precipice of actually seeing the Moripah Swamp River reintroduction become a reality. Um, Moripah Swamp is, if, if you haven't seen it, it's just an absolutely spectacular forest, swamp forest, um, full of cypress trees. But it's a, unfortunately, it's a dying forest. It doesn't have the nutrients and the renourishment and the sediment um, to allow for um, cypress to regenerate. Um, it's also seen a lot of saltwater intrusion. There's been issues with droughts over the years. Um, so, you know, the, the forest just isn't rejuvenating. So we need that river water to get back into the swamp to bring those nutrients, to bring those fluctuations in water levels um, that will help stimulate the, the regeneration of the forest. And from an ecological perspective and for, like, birds specifically, why is the Moorpaw Swamp so vital? Well, it's actually considered a, an important bird area, um, which means that at least 1% of a species of conservation concern is found there. Um, so it's a really, really important nesting area for things like Prothonotary warbler, this little yellow songbird that, that lives here and then migrates south for the winter. Um, it's an important nesting area for bald eagles, for little blue herons. Uh, historically, it was a really important wintering area for mallard ducks. So it, it has, you know, provides all sorts of um, resources for a whole variety of birds. Um, it's really, really, really important and that we bring it back and, and recover it to its full potential. And, you know, it really always just amazes me about Louisiana's coast is, you know, how much diversity exists in a short or a small area, right? Like you can go from the Moorpaw Swamp all the way out to Grand Isle and the Bear Islands in a matter of an hour and a half, two hours, right? But the, the diversity of the ecosystem and the landscape and the wildlife that depend on that are so varied. So tell us a little bit about that diversity and why it's so important, I mean, for wildlife and other reasons to maintain that, um, you know, what we know is the diversity of our, of our delta. Yeah, well, the delta is really just one of these amazing natural ecological wonders of the world, right? Over 300 species of birds are found here. Um, and like I mentioned before, it's just the numbers of birds is pretty incredible. We have more brown pelicans than any other state. Um, 
you know, more Wilson's Flovers than any other state. It's just you can go down the list, and we just have this amazing diversity. And, and that is in large part due to the influence of the river, um, bringing all this sediment and water um, into a landscape that mixes with the, the salt water of the Gulf of Mexico, which creates these beautiful chenier forests and ridges and wet areas. And, I mean, it's um, when you get those kinds of geological features and, and ecological features meeting each other, um, it, it, it just creates this bounty that we know as South Louisiana. Well, speaking of bounty, you know, I would be derelict in my duty if I didn't ask you a fun question. So today's fun question is a little bit of, uh, you know, a surprise question for you. Uh, it, it is, what is your favorite Louisiana non-bird species? Non-bird species. I'm sorry to, to, you know, give you a tough question, but, you know, I'm really curious. I feel like I know your favorite bird species, maybe. Wow. Yeah, that's tough because... I'm 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 actually a, a naturalist at heart. I like pretty much everything. So I might I might actually go with a river otter. That that's a good that. that's a good answer. You know, I don't know I think I have maybe encountered them once or twice, but not often. But yeah. it's a, one of those species you don't think about often. Um, but yeah, they, they are in our area and, and our environment supports them. Well, Eric, we've got only a minute or so left, but there are more opportunities for people to get involved. So tell us quickly about the great backyard bird count that's coming up. Yeah, so um, this is a, an all-out community science project uh, that takes place around the world over the Valentine's Day weekend. So show your love for birds by counting them. And um, basically all you have to do is count birds uh, at your favorite location or any location you choose for about 15 minutes. And uh, you can submit your, um, uh, submit your observations to ebird.org. And um, that becomes part of this global database on, on bird numbers uh, around the world. Awesome. And you can go to la.audubon.org to learn more about that? Yep, absolutely. Great. Well, you know, no better way to spend your Valentine's Day than showing love for birds. Make birds your Valentine this year. Um, Well, Eric, thank you so much for being on and updating us about all the things coastal, all the things birds that's happening and all the great work that you and um, everyone at Audubon, Louisiana is doing. Like I said, you're always welcome back on Delta Dispatches. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. All right. Well, we'll be right back. We're going to be shifting from birds to youth and childhood education around the environment and coast, speaking to the executive director of the, the Louisiana Children's Museum, Museum, which recently reopened in um, City Park. So stick with us. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM. On the ASPN Network, coastal news for the pelagic-minded. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. Um, And we are now joined by Julia Bland, Executive Director of Louisiana Children's Museum. Uh, Welcome to Delta Dispatches, Julia. Thank you so much. Delighted to be with you. Well, it's been an exciting year, I guess, several months for the Louisiana Children's Museum. How are things going over there at the new City Park location? Things are hopping. (laughs) They're going really well. We're very delighted to be up and running with such an amazing reception from the community. 
we've had a tremendous um, reception and love that so many families are coming again and again. Well, you know, our groups had the the pleasure of having a meeting at your facilities last week and at the Children's yeah. Museum, and we got to see some of the exhibits, and it was just beautiful building, incredible exhibits, and then just to see the kids and their parents and others, you know, with the amount of energy and enthusiasm, it was just such a treat. So I do want to talk about the exhibits in the museum, but first I want to ask a little bit about your background. So tell us about yourself. Well, I've been at this job for 22 years and more than half of that time really working on this project. So it's been it's been a long time coming, um, a lot of community input along the way, and I'm from a family of educators, and so it's really been fun to sort of weave my background and my children and my grandchildren's interest into what we've been shaping for the community. But it's um, we're really tickled to be able to share more with you over the phone today. So thank you. Absolutely. And congratulations on kind of what must be such an incredible accomplishment to actually walk through the doors and see so many people walking through those doors after so much work has gone into it. It is. It is. It's a big, huge team effort. Lots of people contributed to it. Thank you. Well, great. Um, so tell us a little bit about some of the offerings. I mean, some of our listeners may be familiar with the former or the Children's Museum that was out on Julia Street. Right. But um, obviously, this is an expanded museum and there's more to it. So tell us a little bit about the the new Louisiana Children's Museum. Well, this is dramatically different from the, the original Children's Museum we all knew and loved. And um, we, we really wanted to make a big effort here as we were so privileged to come into the middle of City Park to have a focus on environmental education, stewardship, sustainability, resilience. Those kind of threads really run throughout all the decisions that we made, whether it was the selection of the architectural team or the exhibit design team or what, what, what kind of experiences we prepared for the community to enjoy. And so we've, we've looked at water and water management as a globally significant topic, but certainly locally very significant, and tried to make it very hands-on, fun and interactive for a three-year-old, a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, but also very relevant for the issues and challenges that are facing our community. So we've, we've really looked at environmental education indoors with exhibits and outdoors with the green infrastructure that we have and the experiences outside in nature. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I mean, you know, having an issue that Simone and I talk about so much on the show and that we work in and then to see it um, created and these experiences and these educational opportunities for youth in the museum was just so cool to see that. So um, let's talk a little bit about some of those experiences. So there is uh, an exhibit or an experience dedicated entirely to the Mississippi River. So tell us right. about Move with the River and what inspired that? Move with the River is the the biggest investment that we made. It's a 100-foot-long water table that takes the Mississippi River from Lake Atasca, Minnesota, to the Gulf of Mexico. And children love water. They love splashing in pebbles. They, they love playing in the bathtub. They love experimenting with water. Um, so water is fun, and it's messy, of course, but it's also really important. And in this exhibit, we felt it was so incredibly important to show, understand the, the connections between the sources of water and the uses of water, the management of water in and around the city of New Orleans. So this water table, which is really one of the highlights of the new museum, um, has taken into effect just sort of the playfulness, but also the serious engineering management 
opportunities. And it's very open-ended. There are a lot of connections that kids can make, and, and um, there are all sorts of pipes and, and duels they can use to, to move water around. They can build bridges. They can build dams. They can open up locks. They can have drainage canals and pumping stations and spillways and, and load cargo at the Port of New Orleans, um, all sorts of things. But it is an opportunity to, to really um, go a little deeper if you want, or just enjoy the, the fun and interactivity, if you wish. Yeah, I loved seeing that um, exhibit and seeing the kids interact with it. I mean, growing up alongside the Mississippi River, it's something we often take for granted. But then this gives them an opportunity to really get their hands in there and think about all the components of, you know, living next to the country's largest river. Right, right. It's, it is, you're so right. I mean, water is all around us. And for us to to be able to interact with it this way is is fun, but very important. I also loved the sedimentation table. So tell us a little bit about that and the Dig Into Nature uh, exhibit. You know, I honestly feel that this is probably one of the most important teaching tools that we have in the entire space. Um, the sedimentation table is a demonstration of how water moves through land and how it can wash away land, how it can build up land. Um, there, it's an entirely open-ended series of experiences there, whether you're building levees or building dams or um, creating more waterways or building, building land at the end of this, this run of water with um, the flow of it sort of building up on itself. So this is, this is an exhibit that is very, um, very much informed by the challenges we have with coastal restoration and shoreline restoration. Um, it, it is also another hands-on experience. Um, children can just have a number of different ways to play with and learn from this particular exhibit. I loved seeing, I think there was one uh, young girl who was actually building a volcano with the, <laughs> with the sand. And we're like, you know, maybe that's what we need. There's a ring of mountains around our coast to protect right. us. But it, I love that you can kind of interpret it and, and kind of put yourself into it. So exactly. um, one of the other things that was so cool about the museum is kind of, I mean, it's a beautiful indoor space and, of course, a beautiful building. But there's this like you know, wonderful transition to the outdoors and also outdoor exhibits as well. So tell us about some of the stuff that is outside of the, the main building and the outdoor adventures. Well, one of the things that we really appreciated about our architectural firm is the way they sited the building and opened up the indoors to the outdoors. So you're so right. We absolutely wanted to make the connection between Dig Into Nature, the exhibit gallery, and the beautiful majestic live oak trees right outside that then lead to learning experiences around water management. We have a giant cistern that holds 7,000 gallons of water, and the water is collected off of the roof of one of the buildings. It go, the water then goes into irrigation to, um, to help irrigate our landscape. We, we're on an eight-and-a-half-acre site and have some really wonderful interactive gardens around the outdoor play space. And so that natural irrigation is a big plus. Um, we also have a lot of runnels and bioswales so that you can learn about how water flows in, in a day like today where we had a lot of rain. Um, there's an edible garden where, where kids can plant seeds and watch their seeds sprout and, and watch them grow and ultimately harvest them. So that, that is a set of experiences where we're, we're actually seeing families come back because the, 
three-year-old and five-year-old and seven-year-old who planted seeds want to watch the progress. And so that's, that's an awful lot of fun. Well, that is so cool. And, and, you know, for those like myself who may have grown up with the prior uh, Children's Museum, some of the favorite experiences that we had, such as the grocery store, are still there, right? Right, right. And, and with our new grocery store, which is sponsored by Rouse's, we wanted to make the connections between the source of food, whether it's the wetlands and the crawfish or it's the, it's the farms and the harvesting So the grocery store is absolutely still there, and there's a cafe, and there's shipping up and down the Port of New Orleans with cargo. So it's really the whole cycle of food. Um, You've also, you know, you've probably experienced the bubbles on Julia Street, and we have a pretty gigantic bubble exhibit at our new museum. And actually, this one is handicap accessible. So if you're in a wheelchair, you can roll right into it and, and pull a bubble all around you. And then another favorite from Julia Street was our studio, and we have a spectacular studio space, way larger than the original studio on Julia Street, and it actually has a beautiful view of downtown New Orleans. Um, I'm not sure that there's another place in City Park where you can look at downtown New Orleans, so it's a, it's a magnificent view looking out to the trees looking across to the sculpture garden, but a wonderful studio. So cool. And I would say that I I am jealous that I didn't have this growing up, but I realize (laughs) that the Children's Museum is probably for the young and the young at heart, right? So (laughs) It's it's for all of us. (laughs) Absolutely for all of us. Awesome. And we're about to head into a break, but um, I know groups can be hosted there. Like like we we had our group activity there. Um, It's open for parties and, and visitors. So where can people go to learn more and get information about visiting the museum? Our website is lcm.org and you can find out all the answers to your questions there. Wonderful. Well, Julia, if you don't mind holding on, um, I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about the process of bringing this museum together, um, you know, some of the resilience uh, values that you've highlighted um, in our next segment. So we're on Delta Dispatches with Julia Bland, Executive Director of Louisiana Children's Museum, and we'll be right back after the break. From the bottom of the Marianas Trench, this is ASPN, the American Shoreline Podcast Network. News for the pelagic-minded. Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund, and it is time for the Coastal Voice of the Week. Um, This week's Coastal Voice is Jennifer and Lafayette. And Jennifer says, I support coastal preservation and restoration because our wetlands are an integral, integral part of our heritage and future in agriculture, seafood, tourism, and biological diversity. Thank you, Jennifer. And reminder, you can go online at any point at restorethecoast.org and share your own coastal voice, and uh, we might just read it on the show. So I'm back with Julia Bland, Executive Director of Louisiana Children's Museum. We're talking about the expanded, beautiful, new Louisiana Children's Museum in City Park. Um, So, Julia, there's so many uh, opportunities for children to learn about nature and the environment and hands-on Um, like kind of immersive opportunities. So from your perspective, why is it so important that children at even the youngest age, um, you know, learn about nature and our environment? You know, I think if if we look back, today's environmentalists always had experiences in childhood that that were really memorable, very moving, whether it was in the mountains and the beach, at the farm, in the backyard. And it is so important for us to make the connections that, that nature gives us, to understand and respect nature, understand 
how to use natural resources like daylight and water and oxygen from the trees, food from the ground that we grow. Um, nature really teaches us a lot. And I think what, what we have tried to create is a series of experiences for young children so that they can really learn to appreciate and value and respect the, the great outdoors. And as they build those values around caring for nature, then it's very natural for, the, for them to build values about caring for other, um, for other people. So if you're looking out for the birds or looking out for the turtles or looking out for the frogs, then you're much more likely to be respectful of your little brother or your little sister. <laughs> That's so true. And I think you all have done an excellent job, you know, with with those experiences. And Simone and I have talked a lot about, you know, kind of coastal literacy and, and education a lot at the, you know, college level and even community college level in terms of workforce development. But there's you're never too young to start experiencing and learning about nature and the importance of our environment. So it's great that you all have that experience available to so many people. Um, well, speaking of commitment to the environment, I read that the Louisiana Children's Museum is the greenest project in City Park. So tell us about that commitment to sustainability and how it's reflected in your in your museum. Well, it, it, it really came from hiring incredibly talented people who are extremely knowledgeable. But we really started with the site and the siting of our building, which is very oriented around majestic live oak trees. It's oriented around the arc of the sun so that we get the maximum amount of daylighting without getting heat. The building itself is a lead silver building. The, the landscaping that we did, we followed the sustainable sites guidelines, which, which really means that the way you're identifying the planting, it's in indigenous plants, non-invasive plants, so that we know how we're, we're caring for plants and what the selection of plants is a very intentional one to, to really increase the wildlife activity. Um, we have a lot of green infrastructure uh, throughout the museum, and it's We've, we've been called a, an important international demonstration project when it comes to being green. So we're very excited to be able to, to give people tours to really show the shoreline restoration and the green, um, the cisterns and the bioswells and the runnels and stormwater drainage and the way that the building really, you learn from the building in terms of the way we're, we're managing water, we're watching water, we're listening to water, we're understanding sunlight and appreciating the daylight. We did daylighting studies to, um, to really identify how our offices could be lighted without electricity being used to turn on the lights. Um, and there's also, a, there are different aspects that highlight the wind and the wind's movement, whether it's the magical fog installation. We have a fabulous um, installation done by an 86-year-old Japanese artist. It was very generously supported by the Hellas Foundation, but it, it responds to meteorological conditions. And, and so there, there are so many ways to learn about nature and being, being very green. We compost heavily, um, not only with our own staff activity, but particularly with Acorn Cafe, the Dickie Brennan Company uh, cafe that's operated at our museum. Yeah, and I it was a foggy day when we visited and the fog machine was just it was so cool to see that over the ponds and it was just a very um, awesome experience. Well, I know stewardship and resilience are a core value for Louisiana Children's Museum. So from your perspective as an institution, you know, based in New Orleans, why is that important? 
Well, it's obviously one of the most important challenges facing us regionally, but also globally. And I think what what guided our planning all along the way was to think about what's globally significant and locally relevant, and then how could we make it fun and interactive and hands-on for children and their parents, their grandparents, their their teachers, their babysitters. Um, so. Looking at stewardship and resilience was really a filter through which we made every single one of our decisions. It was an important guiding light as we thought about siting the building, the materials that we used, the experiences that we created. Uh, We were very, very intentional about um, all of the decisions, and we want this environment to be able to inspire and and impact others. We hope a lot of people will look at what we've done and think we can do that at our place. We can we can make some of these adjustments with our home or our school or our business. And um and we're it's been a long journey and we've learned a lot, but we're really excited about about the way natural resources are used here. So cool. And you know, I can't wait to come back. I think I'm going to try to vie for Uncle of the Year award and bring my <laughs> nieces and nephews as many times right. as I can. Um, but so what, uh, are there any exciting things coming up in the next few months at the Children's Museum? Oh, there are lots of things in the planning stages right now. Um, just stay tuned. Come follow our, our website, lcm.org. Um, there, there are so many exciting things that are in the works. Some of them, I guess I'll know more next week about some of the big ones, but um, yes, we have a, a lot of plans. We wanted to make sure that we really focus on smooth operations when we first opened, and now we're starting to do some pretty ex- extraordinary programming. So that's there's a lot of fun to look forward to. Awesome. Well, one more time, what is the website that people can go to to learn more and plan their visit? Yes, it's lcm.org. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Julia, and congratulations thank again you. on an amazing institution that's still in New Orleans, but you know, improved and expanded, and it's absolutely beautiful. So take your family, go on your own, and visit the Louisiana Children's Museum and City Park. Um, and best of luck in 2020. I know this is going to be an exciting year for you all. Indeed. Thank you so much. Of course. Well, Speaking of exciting events that are upcoming, it's that time of year again. Join us on February 8th, 2020 at Dockville Farm in St. Bernard Parish from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. for the third annual Cook-Off for the Coast. Cook-Off for the Coast is a family-friendly event with fun activities for kids and educational information for all ages about coastal restoration and how you can get involved. Local cook teams will battle in a wild game cooking competition featuring Louisiana's Wild Bounty, Free samples for attendees while supplies last. This year's competition categories will include water, air, land, and a crowd favorite and student category. It'll feature live music from Louisiana Soul Creole led by Grammy-nominated Cajun fiddler Louis Michaud and Zydeco accordionist Corey Lede. There will be a cash bar from Pierog's Whiskey Bayou. And the event will benefit the Chandelure Sound Living Shoreline Program, a partnership with Nunez Community College and Chalmette High School, which builds and installs oyster breakwaters along the northern edge of Comfort Island. Cook-Off for the Coast is free and open to the public. You can learn more at cookofforthecoast.com. And one more time, it's February 8th, 2020 at Dockville Farms, the third annual Cook-Off for the Coast from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. in St. Bernard Parish. Be sure to take your friends and family down. Um, It'll be a great event, a lot of wonderful um, food, delicious food, music, educational opportunities. And I think 
myself and potentially Simone will be emceeing again. So you'll get to meet us and kind of experience your Delta Dispatches hosts um, out in the field. Um, if you're looking to give back to the coast, our partners at Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana have some opportunities coming up um, Friday, January 24th, Saturday, January 25th um, at Lake Morpaw. They're going to be doing tree plantings. Um, you can go to crcl.org to learn more. There's also going to be one on January 30th. And then Lake Pontchartrain Basin Foundation will have some plantings coming up in the Carnarvon Braithwaite area um, on January 25th, this Saturday, as well as January 29th. You can go to um, givepulse.com and search for Lake Pontchartrain Basin Swamp Restoration. Um, it's been another great show. We're going to come back next week and we're actually going to have folks from the cook-off on to talk about that event, talk about what you can expect, the different food, the teams, as well as the work that that event supports in terms of restoration in St. Bernard Parish. So I've missed Simone tremendously. I know she is doing great things in Washington, D.C. for Louisiana's coast. It was so wonderful to have Eric Johnson back on the show and, of course, Julia Bland with the Louisiana Children's Museum. Thank you for listening. You can go to deltadispatches.org and catch up on 100-plus episodes. Um, Subscribe, like us, share us with your friends, and we'll be back next week.